Kids, I hope you have a great time in the back. Uh, This morning, we're going to finish our look at uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, But to do so, we're going to turn to an unlikely place. So I'd encourage you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we're going to read starting in verse 22 in just a moment. Uh, If you were with us last week, we looked at a a celebration at the end of the book of Nehemiah. And it was a a really fun chapter that looked at them celebrating and and eating and drinking and dancing. And there was music and, and all sorts of joy. And we discussed that as as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we ought to be the most celebratory people that we know. Why? Because we have a lot to celebrate. We talked also about how we love celebrations in our culture last week, and we've even made up certain holidays uh, to just to throw a party and to enjoy ourselves and have a celebration. I don't know if you've heard about this newer holiday, but I keep hearing about it a little bit more every year, but it's called Christmas in July. Have you heard about this, right? Christmas isn't good enough just to spend in the month of December, so now on July 25th, which is halfway to Christmas, we have what's called now Christmas in July. I don't really watch a whole lot of Hallmark Channel, but apparently the Hallmark Channel runs Christmas movies all day long on Christmas in July. Uh, we were on July 25th this year, we were in um, uh, North Carolina, uh, down south, and uh, I remember turning on a radio station, and they were playing all Christmas music. And so Jack Frost was nipping at my nose in 105 degree weather in North Carolina. Um, I'm not a fan of this, but hey, people want reasons to celebrate. So despite uh, maybe your reservation or my reservations about Christmas in July, what I'm actually going to do this morning is preach a, a, a traditionally Christmas passage in the month of August. So that's what we're going to do this morning. I hope you can forgive me, but I hope you'll see the the relevance of a passage like this as we conclude our look at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So again, Luke chapter 2, Luke is the only gospel writer that tells this story. Uh, Luke chapter 22, and I'm going to be reading, uh, or Luke chapter 2, I'm going to be reading from verses 22 through uh, 40, I believe. So this is God's word. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they, speaking of Mary and Joseph, brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do to him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. 
And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is God's word. Father, thank you so much for the gift of of music and song and the way it sings truth into our hearts. Thanks for the opportunity to sing your praises this morning, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with just awe and affection for who you are and for what you've done. We pray that as we come to your word and we uh, consider this important moment in the story of redemption, may we also see uh, its crucial importance for our own stories as well. So speak to us through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever um, watched a movie and regretted it after it was over? Uh, maybe you went to the movie theater or maybe you watched it and, and you just felt like you either wasted your time or you wasted your money. And of course, the movies are so expensive now, you want to make sure it's, it's a good movie. But maybe the movie didn't develop, maybe you weren't in the mood, uh, maybe it didn't have the the right plot or the character development, maybe it didn't resolve, or maybe you were hoping for a movie that had a happy ending, uh, but the end, it wasn't really a happy ending. Well, a lot of people actually have looked at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and have said that both of them feel like stories or movies that don't resolve or don't really have at least a happy ending. Uh, If you've been with us, you'll know we've studied these books this summer, and we've looked particularly at uh, two men, Ezra uh, Ezra and Zerubbabel, and how they led two waves of God's people out of exile. Uh, They returned back to Israel, they they rebuilt the temple, they reinstituted all the rituals of worship, and, and Ezra taught the law of God, rebuilding their hearts as he as he taught them God's will and God's word uh, for their lives. And everything was going so well throughout the book of Ezra. And then at the very end, this huge issue comes up, this intermarriage issue comes up. And the book of Ezra actually ends with this really sad event that involves a mass divorce and a separation of families. It's It's actually a heartbreaking way to finish the book, and it's a great reminder that that not every story has a happy ending. Well, the book of Nehemiah, which follows it, has its own anti-climax as well. The climax that everybody was waiting for at the end of the book of Nehemiah doesn't actually come. Uh, Instead, it's delayed for 400 years until the Gospel of Luke and the passage that we read this morning involving an old man named Simeon 
and a woman named Anna. So this morning, as I look at this, as we look at this passage in Luke chapter two, I'd like us to see the glory of God in the temple and the glory of God in our hearts. Uh, The second point has to do with really the characters of the story, and the first point has to do with the setting of our story. And what I hope us to see is how Jesus becomes the climax of this story of redemption and how he ought to be the climax of our individual stories as well. So let's start by looking at the glory of God as it fills the temple. And I want to go back to verse 27 where it says this. And he, Simeon, came in the spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God. Now this verse might seem like it's just furthering the story. It's just sort of painting the picture for us. But there was what seems to be an insignificant detail of Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus into the temple, which actually isn't insignificant at all. In fact, it's really a big deal. And the reason it's a big deal, and to understand its significance, we have to go back a little bit to the history that we've talked about all summer. You see, when the people of God were freed from their Egyptian enslavement, we call that the Exodus event, Uh, They came out of Egypt and they constructed what was called a tabernacle. The tabernacle was a place where they worshipped, but it was the place where God lived with them. And if you can imagine it, he led them by a cloud by day and a pillar by night, and it settled over this tabernacle. But once they entered into the promised land and they became a, a powerful kingdom, they had peace from all their enemies... Uh, King David was the king of Israel, and he wanted to build God something more permanent, a a, a temple, a permanent place where God would dwell amongst his people. And sometimes I think this was just selfish on David's part. He wanted God to be with him in the most real of senses. He wanted God to move into the neighborhood with them in the kingdom. But David didn't get to complete the job. The job actually fell to his son, a man named Solomon. And Solomon builds this magnificent temple and, and no expense was spared. It was a, a beautiful temple. It was opulent in every single way. But when they completed the temple, they were left with a big question. Is God going to show up? Is he going to show up the way he did at the tabernacle? Would he really move into the neighborhood? So Solomon prays this sort of earnest prayer in front of the whole nation, asking God to come. And at the end of his prayer, the scripture tells us the glory of God filled the temple in a miraculous and powerful way for all the people to see. God did show up. He did move into the neighborhood. And so if if people were ever to doubt that God was with them, that God's presence was with them, all they would have to do is look at the temple and they could see the power of God in their midst. Well, hundreds of years later, God's people had, had wandered away from him through sin and all sorts of idolatry, and then the unthinkable happened. And this is what picks up our summer series. The Babylonians rolled into town, they entered into Jerusalem, they burned that temple that Solomon built to the ground, and they carried away all of its wealth as spoil. They exiled the nation in all parts of the Babylonian world. But after 70 years later, God's people were allowed to return to their lands. 
And under Ezra and Nehemiah, they rebuilt the temple. That's what we've been looking at this summer. It wasn't as opulent or lavish as Solomon's temple, but it would be a place of worship for them. It would be a symbol of God's presence for the people of God. But they came back to that same question. Would God show up? Would he enter into this temple? And so Ezra and Nehemiah, they pray over the temple. They gather the nation together, just like Solomon had done. We looked at that last week. They mourned, they they celebrated, they rededicated the temple to the Lord, they rededicated their lives to God, They, they recommitted their life to him. But God's presence, his glory, didn't come the way it had come for Solomon. And so the book feels a bit like an anti-climax. It's sort of building up to this this powerful moment that never really comes. There's no fire from heaven. There's no sound of rushing wind. God didn't come the same way that he had done under Solomon. And it doesn't really say it in the book, but it had to be a huge disappointment for God's people at the end of Nehemiah. So the question is, why didn't God come? Well, that's because God had something else in store. Which brings us to our passage this morning, which tells us why the setting of this story is so important. Because hundreds of years after Nehemiah, a a young girl named Mary gives birth to a child whose name is Jesus. Mary and Joseph were, were faithful and they were pious Jews. And they realized that after Jesus was born, it was time to take him to the temple. And so they traveled to Jerusalem to engage in all the the purifications and all the dedication rites. And, And according to these purification rituals, a person would bring a lamb and they would sacrifice that lamb in order to cover their own sins, to atone for or to make up for their sin. But Mary and Joseph were poor. Uh, They didn't have just lambs sitting around the house in order to slaughter. And so the law allowed for the poorest of cases, in the poorest of cases, that the two turtle doves or two pigeons could be sacrificed instead. So that's what Mary and Joseph bring with them. But don't miss the detail. Jesus enters the temple for the very first time. The glory of God didn't come in a storm. It didn't come in a cloud. It, came, it didn't come as a pillar of fire or an earthquake. It didn't come in strength and pomp and circumstance. The glory of God filled the temple through a baby boy named Jesus, also named Emmanuel, which means God with us. Thousands of people noticed that the fire didn't descend under Nehemiah. But in Luke, only two people and two poor teenagers, a couple, noticed the arrival of God in the temple. God's presence entered into the temple and hardly anybody noticed. It's the significance of this moment here of the glory of God filling the temple in a very unexpected way But what I also want us to see this morning is how the glory of God fills our hearts as well, individually. And our passage introduces us to two unique characters. One's name is Simeon, and the other's name is Anna. Both of them have some age to them. 
Uh, and it's the only time we see either one of them in our book, uh, the book of Luke. Uh, we don't really read about them in any of the other gospels. This is really the only, other, the only time we really read about them. Now, when I was a kid, I was told uh, that you should keep away from strangers, right? And so here Mary and Joseph are in the temple, and these strangers start to approach them. Mary and Joseph are in the temple, and all of a sudden, Simeon recognizes Jesus and comes to this couple and snatches the baby up for them, from them and holds the baby in his own arms. I, I thought back to when I was a first, first-time parent. I was rather protective over my child when I was a, a first-time parent. If somebody looked at my baby the wrong way, if they breathed too close to my baby, uh, I would get a little bit upset. But here this stranger, Simeon, comes up and just snatches the baby into his arms. We only know what Luke tells us about him. He was devout and righteous. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for, for God to fulfill his promises. And, and what we also know, he's got this really unique promise from God. And we don't know the circumstances around it. But the promise essentially was he would not die until he saw the Christ. Then he's in the temple and he sees Jesus from afar and he immediately knows. How does he know? We're not told, but he immediately knows, and he takes Jesus up into his arms. He blesses him. He sings a song over him. He says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Daryl Bach writes, having seen Jesus and knowing him, Simeon is at peace. Everything else in his life pales in comparison. He has met Jesus And the details of the rest of his life's resume were irrelevant. The other stranger we meet is a woman named Anna. Again, the only thing we know about Anna is what Luke tells us. She was a prophetess of the tribe of Asher. She'd been a widow for decades. And that fact would have made her remarkably vulnerable in the first century world, but she didn't sulk about her bad situation. Instead, it tells us she made a career out of prayer. That's what she did. Just like Hannah, her her waiting for God was active. It says she never left the temple. She was always fasting. She was always praying, and I think that's why she immediately recognizes Jesus. The wait was now over God's redemption was now here. You see, that baby that day didn't just enter the temple, which had its own significance in and of itself, but that baby entered into their hearts as well. Now, friends, I don't know where you are right now as you sit here or um, as you contemplate this story. I don't know all the difficulties that you've suffered, all the maybe trauma that you're going through. We've all been through challenges. We've all been through difficult times and maybe even feel like you're locked in in one of those difficult times right now, one of those difficult circumstances. And and maybe your life feels like it's, it's in ruins all around you, just like that temple was in ruins. And you certainly wish someone could come and and fix that situation. Wouldn't it be great if God just showed up and fixed whatever difficulty I'm, I'm dealing with right now? But I think sometimes we would just settle with knowing that someone is with us in the midst of our trouble. 
You know, if somebody can't fix this, at least we need to know we have somebody alongside of us for the ride, that we're not alone in whatever it is that we're facing. You see, I believe that's what King David wanted. He, he just wanted God to be with him. I think that's what Solomon wanted. I think that's what Ezra and Nehemiah wanted. It certainly is what Simeon and Anna wanted. They, they wanted God to be with them. Maybe that's what you want as well. Maybe you just want God to be with you. Well, friends, that is the power of the gospel story that tells us that God doesn't just dwell in temples that are made by human hands, but God, by his spirit, dwells with you. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your savior, just as Simeon and Anna did, the power of God dwells with you. It forgives you of your sins. It enfolds you into the family of God. It completes you in his love. And it means that his presence is with you every single step of the way. He will never leave you and he will never forsake you. He is the one that our hearts most long for. Every, uh, I usually listen to music when I write sermons, and so um, every sermon sort of has a soundtrack to it in some, in some weeks, and obviously in, during Christmas time, I, not during Christmas in July, but during Christmas time, I like to listen to, to Christmas music, and uh, one year I remember discovering an, a sort of instrumental piano rendition of uh, the great Christmas song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Um, uh, the song is a waiting song. It's a song that's sort of pregnant with all sorts of, of expectation. And, and this version was so beautiful on the piano that I just kept listening to it over and over and over again. And it reminded me of the lyric, O come, O come, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. And the same is true for us. Jesus steps into our loneliness. He, he steps into our exile. And this stepping in is far better than that first exodus under Moses. It's far better than that second exodus under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. This is the ultimate exodus. An exodus from sin and death. Jesus frees us from the captivity to sin. He fills us with his presence and our hearts rejoice as a result of it. And so friends, the best movies maybe, the best stories are the ones that are most unexpected. And that certainly is what we get with the gospel. God's presence at the end didn't come in a pomp and circumstance and strength. Instead, it came in a stable, born to poor teenagers. God's presence came riding on a donkey to Jerusalem. The shepherd was pierced and betrayed. And on the third day, he beat death and rose from the grave. Jesus is the climax of human history, of the story of redemption. And he longs to be the climax of your life as well. Let's pray.